This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Homo sapiens, it's been long overdue. I've got Jerry Lynn with me. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Rosie. It's it's good to hear from you. It's been a minute. I've missed you. I've missed you too. You've been working really hard. I've been drowning in cellos. Uh, uh-huh. You know, and as as we record this, it's it's June twenty fourth. Uh, Oberlin restoration was supposed to start on Sunday, but for various reasons. Uh, we, we had to, to cancel it at, at last minute. And, uh, you know, that was a ton of work. I'm recovering from that. Uh, It's, it's life's been crazy. It's been a mess. You've had an emotional 48 hours coming to this decision. Oh yeah. Not just working hard physically, but you've been through it emotionally. I've I've been through it hard a lot because it's tough when you've got people who are family because uh, I consider a lot of the people, a lot of my colleagues to have become, to become almost like family and to not be able to see them. That's rough. Yeah. So this upcoming week that you have unexpectedly free, my hope for you is that you get some real, some fun free time to just to do whatever the hell you want. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Hopefully I'm going to visit some some friends who are within driving distance. But I understand you're making a trip here. I'm making a trip. So yes, I had the opportunity this summer. I, I had to make a choice between going to Oberlin uh-huh. or going to spend a week in Vienna. Oh, and man, that's rough. <laughs> I, I chose Vienna uh, because it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. So uh-huh. I, I am going and what I'm going to do is go see the I'm gonna botch this name the the Kunsthistorisches Museum. <laughs> that's 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 about as well as I would mangle okay. it. We we got okay. to apologize to our German speaking friends. Yeah, Kunsthistorische. I I think that's it. But we'll get yeah. we'll get emails. I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm gonna spend a whole day in the instrument area, uh-huh. and. I, I tried to get Ben Hebert to get on a plane, but he couldn't get his visa renewed in time. What a slacker. I know, but he, <laughs> such a slacker. He, <laughs> I'm kidding, Ben. I love you. I mean, he, he's, he's a very lovely slacker. He's very charming, but geez, Ben. Yeah. Come on. Just, just get your stuff renewed. Uh, ben gave us this piece of advice in our summer series on identification. He said, take notes and take notes in different ways draw, even if you can't draw, mm-hmm. uh, it, different ways of, of writing stuff out. He said, even if your notes are rubbish, do it because mm-hmm. it enters your brain in a different way. So that's going to be my practice going to see, uh, in particular, the works of Franz Geisenhoff, um, who some say they call him the Stradivari of Vienna. And so I'm going to get to look at his works. Jerry, you shared with me that you have a particular interest in older instruments of non-Italian origin. Maybe some people might say underrated. Um, and you, you're you charmed by this particular maker. And I want to hear more about it. 
Got to excuse, I'm, I'm not recording in my normal area, so there's a dog that's trying to vie for my attention. He's very happy. Uh, so Viennese instruments in general, I find to be very charming. Uh, that might have a lot to do with, you know, with wine, we talk about terroir, where the soil, the climate, the water, everything influences the mm. way the grapes grow and the way that gets turned into wine. I, I really feel strongly that instruments are are the same same way. And uh, last time, the only time I was to Vienna was about a little over 20 years ago. And the thing that seemed to stick with me, even though it was a very, it's a very large city, there were aspects of it that felt like a smaller place. And it seemed very charming. It almost had this lilt and this sweetness and... Maybe it's because I'm influenced a lot by, the, you know, the music of Fritz Kreisler, where you have like Liebeslied and Liebesfreud and, and and that sort of music where there's this just nostalgia. You know, as a violinist, there's a lot of nostalgia for Fritz Kreisler's music. And I see that a lot in the instruments. A lot of the the 18th century instruments, late 18th century instruments, they either range from this opaque sort of chocolatey color to instruments that are very vividly colored. And, um, the, the, you know, the F holes are, well, the whole thing, you know, you've got these instruments where a lot of these people were, were trained in Fusen and they left and they came to the big city. And so I, I think there's this wonderful combination of, of a smaller place charm. Again, it comes back to a smaller place charm to a, a much larger metropolitan area. And I think I see that in the, the terroir of the instruments. Yes, I want to hear. I want to from hear a, from your mechanical mind, the practical part. From a a practical standpoint. Yeah. From from <laughs> my my mechanical. Maybe it's not so mechanical, but I love I love I love good mysteries. <laughs> you know, every violin is like a crime scene. It's a crime scene of yeah <laughs> of of who did it and who did what to it, and you know, there's. There's not a lot of unknown Italian violins that walk into your average shop. They just, you, mm -hmm. you're not going to find a random Strad or a random Storioni or a random Amati that nobody knows about. Everybody's sussed those things out. But I've discovered, you know, a number of, of Viennese instruments that have, have walked in. Um, a lot of times, you know, expertise has gotten better over the years and a lot of older instruments that weren't particularly valuable in the past, they got lumped into being called, well, it's a German violin or it's a Tyrolean violin. And a lot of these places are, are dumping grounds for when you don't know what it is. Oh, just call it a German violin. But there's so many different flavors of, of, of that part of, of the world. And yeah, you can find Turs. Heck, I found a Geisenhof once. You want to tell me about that moment and how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was pretty darn easy. The thing came in and it had a Gobetti label, which is, you know, <laughs> a lot of times my phone uh -huh. autocorrects uh, Viennese to Venetian. So uh, it's kind of funny that this was masquerading as a Venetian maker. But the thing comes in, and it's of the the darker, opaque variety of 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 Viennese instruments. If you're looking 
at the perspective of Gaitsanov, that's early period. Yeah, earlier. You know, I, I think a lot of those, a lot of those more metropolitan makers, as the early part of the 19th century goes on, they start to feel the 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 Cremonese involvement. They're moving away from you know Steiner like things to Strads and 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 other things. So this thing comes in. It's it's this darker chocolatey brown, opaque red black sort of thing. Yeah. And on the back of the button, there's the the FG, which kind of smacks you in the head. And the scroll was, uh, if you have access to the the Hopfner book, uh, and for those of you who don't own a lot of, of of violin books, the the Hopfner book was put out by the Kunsthistorische Museum. And back when it was first put out, it was a screaming deal at like forty euros, which violin books are like normally hundreds of dollars. And even now, having to order it from from Holster in Germany, it's still a deal. And if, if you're familiar with with that book and you look at the the Geisenhof scrolls, there's a certain certain precision to them. And so I think that's you know when you start to get into things that are non-Italian, it's kind of the Wild West. There's still a chance that you can find something interesting. That's why I like things that are are, are Viennese or English or more provincial French. I do want to interject real quick. That book that I ordered, I have to give special thanks to Ute Zahn for helping me navigate because I did have to order from the place you mentioned. What was that? A Holfter. Holfter. And Mm -hmm. it's all in German. And then they Mm -hmm. want you to send them a bank transfer at I could not figure it out. So uh, I've got that book thanks to Ute. <laughs> and everything in German looks like you're surfing through porn. So <laughs> just just throwing that out there. Sorry to my German speaking yeah. friends. Yeah. <laughs> so so through this, you uh, you've developed a little bit of a passion for those lesser known instruments, the the non-Italian origin instruments. Uh, do you want to share any more about that? They show up, I think, more often than the Italian things do, and mm-hmm. they're not usually on people's radar. Yeah, I know they're on they're on Ben's radar. Ben and I have have chatted a lot about, you know, you 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 learn about what you see and what you want to seek out. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I know he has a strong passion for English instruments uh, because of where he's located at. And you know, I've I've developed kind of a passion for American violins because of obviously where I'm. I'm located at, mm-hmm. and you know, particularly with American violins, there's 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 no real money in in developing your eye for expertise for American violins. I mean, if if I were to write a certificate for an obscure American maker, uh, I might get beer money for it. Yeah. So, but from a the intellectual pursuit of who did this crime scene, <laughs> man, it's fun. <laughs> It's it's really really fun. You track down obscure information. You 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 email people out of the blue that might be into the weird kink that you're in. And hey, can I send you pictures of this violin? And they go, Oh yeah, you can send me pictures of that you violin. Keep equating this with porn, Jerry. Well, you know, we've talked about violin <laughs> porn. I think it's a real thing, and it's 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 an intellectual pursuit and passion. And um. <laughs> 
you know, if I want to spend quality time with 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 my computer and digital photographs of violins, that's me and my own business. That is, it's, I <laughs> honor your right to do whatever and, you want to do, and it doesn't doesn't matter. I know people uh, of of all of all genders, nationalities, uh, and persuasions that look at violin photos. So it's it's not all that unhealthy. And on that note, I invite you all to join me in the crime scene that is my pronunciation of the Kunsthistorisches Museum. Hey, bench monkeys. How many times has this happened to you? You've acquired a library of violin trade books, tools, and wood from a retired colleague, and now the boxes are just taking up an entire corner of your shop. Or you've got a specialty item for the industry, but you had to buy it in bulk, and now you're looking for 25 people to split it with or you've made some righteous custom jigs that need distributing. Well, our friends over at Handcrafted are making all of this easier for us. Luthiers can now create their own online stores for selling those specialty items that are made just for us. Handcrafted.market is making it easier than ever for us to showcase the instruments we make and buy and sell the tools and materials that we need to do our jobs well. So downsize your Tonewood collection or sell a few unused tools. Or start selling your freshly finished instruments or offload some instruments that aren't quite right for your market. No need to wait. For more information and how you can start selling on Handcrafted, go to handcrafted.market slash OMO. Again, that's handcrafted.market slash OMO. Handcrafted.market. For luthiers, by luthiers. The parquet wood floors at the Welt Museum shift and crack as I walk through the corridors. On this day, I am spending an afternoon sketching the violin collection, particularly the collection of Franz Geisenhoff instruments. In the still air of the warm summer day, I find myself examining early, middle, and late period sound holes and trying to recreate them in my sketchbook. Here's what I saw when I drew. The F-holes started with straighter lines toward the outer holes, and the points at the holes twisted inward quite a bit. Later models show a graceful narrowing of the lines toward the outer holes, with more distinct, proud points at the holes, less twisting inward. Franz Geisenhoff was well known in Vienna, living from 1753 to 1821. When Franz was born, the palace of Schönbrunn already existed, a majestic, sprawling legacy of the Habsburg Empire, room after room decorated with gold foil on the walls. It was in these gold walls that Mozart performed for the royal family at age six. In this palace, it's easy to get a sense of the town of Vienna during Geisenhof's time. It's one thing for me, as an American, to know that European cities were wealthy cultural hubs for hundreds of years before there was any Western development in the States. It's another thing to witness the level of craftsmanship that was already demanded at the time. The grand chandeliers and delicate patterns hanging from palace ceilings with cherubed frescoes, the stone sculptures on display in gardens, the carvings that adorned frames of massive paintings filling cathedrals, even the 
the delicate way that cobblestones fan out along a path, all these touches made by artisan hands, establishing a standard of excellence, a community with high expectations. Franz married into the Ter family, already prominent makers in Vienna. The early Ters were contemporaries of Antonio Stradivari, who was thriving in Cremona, just south of the Swiss mountains. Subsequent generations of the Ter family, east of the Swiss mountains, gradually felt the Strad influence. What's notable about Geisenhoff is his earlier violins, made some 50 years after Strad's death, that are marked by traditional Viennese style with dark, opaque varnish, with lines and shapes resembling the Viennese style as well. And over the years of his making, he made a complete shift to Strad copies. His making forms all bear the name of Strad. His forms change, his varnish changes, his F-holes make a dramatic shift toward the Strad style. Questions entered my head as I sketch. How do I draw the difference between texture and wear? Breaks in the wood versus variations in color in the wood itself. How do I capture all that is communicated in a piece of wood and some layers of varnish? How do I really convey the curves? During my drawing experiment, those sound holes, after drawing the fourth one, started to cement in my head. The wings became easy to spot, their placement on the plate, particularly if they leaned in toward the center, even just so slightly, those began standing out to me. The early Geisenhof had a completely different F than the later models. And me, someone who has seen a million Strad models at all price points crossing my workbench, I could easily see this was the Strad effect at work. I was not expecting the difference to leap out to me in such a distinct way after one afternoon of drawing, but there it was. I could look back through the catalog of Geisenhof Islands and easily spot the difference. And I credit that to doing the work of sketching. Hey, Homo Sapiens. On behalf of the Board of Directors of the Violin Society of America, I would like to invite you to our 2022 convention happening November 13th through 19th in sunny Anaheim, California. This will be our first in-person VSA convention since 2019 and our first competition since 2018. If you have never attended a VSA convention before, you're in for a huge treat. I've been attending VSA conventions since 2014, and each year I look forward to meeting old friends, meeting new friends, learning mounds of new things, and picking up plenty of fresh inventory and supplies for my shop. Best of all, I walk away with an overwhelming sense of belonging to this wonderful, vibrant community. How often do you get to have drinks with a small group of people while discussing early Guaneri del Jesus scrolls, or examine hundreds of new instruments and bows made by colleagues from across the world, or have a late-night jam session with some of the best violin makers and esteemed experts of our trade? This is the place where we can let our inner geekery shine bright. For more information, visit vsaweb.org. There you can register for the convention and the competition and book your hotel rooms at our special VSA rate. Oh, and don't forget to look for us OMO folks. We'll definitely be there looking for you. That's vsaweb.org. See you there. Am I breaking up in any way? I hope not. I thought your relationship was really steady. <laughs>
Okay, good. <laughs> I've not party to any premonitions, but I, I wish you guys the very best of luck in the future. <laughs> well, guys, clearly I've got with me Ben Hebert, all the way from Oxford, England. Sorry about that. How's the Asmolean doing over there? It's getting really dusty. <laughs> It's a bit sweaty. We're going through a heat wave, so you can sort of see nose prints of violin makers against the glass of the Messiah. That's right. That's right. Do you have any air conditioning where you are? I'm really lucky. I've got a window at the front of my building and a window at the back of my building. Okay. So so it works. So you get a breeze at night? I do. Okay. I'm glad. (laughs) Well, well, Ben, um, I'm sorry you could not join me in Vienna, maybe next time, or maybe I'll come visit you at the Ashmolean sometime. Brilliant. Uh, but... bring, a, bring a cloth to get the... Okay. <laughs> uh, I want to clarify for everyone, I told you guys in the last episode that I was going to the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, and that is normally where this collection is held. However, this time, uh, I went and I bought a ticket. And then I went up to the information desk and I said, hey, where's the uh, instruments? And the woman looked at me and she's like, no, the Welt Museum. I'm going to say, yeah, the Welt Museum. The Museum of Welts. Yeah, the Welt Museum. And I said, okay, same ticket. And she said, no, <laughs> you go down the street. So I got another ticket, <laughs> went down the street, and I saw this beautiful collection with lots of gorgeous instruments, uh, um, some strads and some stainers, and uh, I'm forgetting what else at the moment. Pianos. Oh, yeah. Lots of other instruments that were not just violins. Um, there were some violin experiments, uh, people just trying different things, but um, also just quite a collection of uh, Franz Geisenhoff's uh, instruments through the years. And that was the purpose of my study. Um, so, Ben, you told me before I left when we were talking about identification, uh, let the information into your brain in different ways. Uh, try not just looking at pictures, try drawing. So that's what I did. I spent an afternoon drawing F holes. I'm trying not to snigger there. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Yeah. I spent an afternoon looking at early model Geisenhoffs and trying very in very staggered ways to recreate these holes, the, the upper wings and getting like the slenderness of the line just right as it descends down into like the lower hole. Uh, you gave me a great piece of advice about how to draw it like within a square, right? Yeah. I think one of the hardest things in the world is it's sound holes and scrolls actually uh, are sort of equally difficult. And you know, it's really easy to be able to draw the top of a of, an, of a sound hole or the, or the bottom, but actually the the sort of the body in between, you know, can be really really difficult to get. And actually, when you start to sort of work, work back from it, you even if you're looking at a violin, you know, the, the moment that you draw the side of the sea bouts to give yourself reference to it, then all of a sudden you know where you're going. Uh, if you if you actually look, you said squares, but actually rectangles and sort of what other construction lines to 
and actually sort of two or three horizontal lines, one or two vertical lines, and it'll give you give you something to, to hang on to. And actually, somewhere along the process of violin of violin sound hole making, you know, somebody's actually gone and drawn one out for the first time on a piece of paper. And even though we might be quite distant from that, you know, ultimately these things are they're en- they're engineering their, you know, their their design, and we can kind of expect them to be going that way. Scrolls again, you know, until you've got the box that the scroll is sitting in, and actually until you've got some kind of line going through it, or you know, whether it's just dots or lines or whatever, which locates where the center is relative to your whole square yeah you know then you're, you're just going to be doing snaky spirals forever and, and not really really finding it but once you've got that sort of confidence parameters that's exactly what i did is just drew them in random places in space really good sound really patronizing would, it wasn't yeah, supposed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah no no that's what i did and um so you know starting with the the upper upper hole and developing the wing and as i descend down to go to the lower wing and the lower hole uh was really hard to know where to stop and there were several times i do a race and redo the proportion um but what i will tell you is um regardless of how successful i was at drawing those accurately, uh, by the end of that exercise, it was so much easier for me to look at, here's an early Franz Geisenhoff before he starts making Strad models. And then here's a late Franz Geisenhoff after the Strad models. Just by looking at the Fs, it was really easy to spot. Whereas before I couldn't have, I couldn't have identified that. So it just it was good recommendation just to sit and draw and process that way. Yeah, and to, to, to get back to the conversation that we, we had whenever before we went, you know, one of the lovely things about, uh, you know, in this case, that museum is, uh, is that you've actually got 10 or so different instruments from a single maker in one place. And there's actually very, very few places on the planet where you can come along and see 10 10 original instruments which which we're able to 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 look at in that way i got a clearer sense of the the arc of his story Mm. the story of him as a maker uh and uh it's just such good info to be able to put that together uh people talk about stradivari's like early period and golden period and late period um, and uh, I've never had access to all of those violins together, but at least with this guy, I could mm-hmm. see the story as it was unfolding. And it's the thing, you're, t- you're looking at a craftsman's work, so mm-hmm. it really doesn't matter if it's Geisenhoff or Galliano or Landolfi or, or whoever, it's, it's, it's just being able to, to see that compass. Absolutely. And, and on, before we move on, one more note about F-holes. You shared with me a story about uh, getting to cut your own um, in a very new and different way. Uh, do you want to share that story with us? Uh, it's, it's kind of an important one because, I mean, I'm talking about being able to 
to, to, to draw them expertly as if I've as if I've always ever been able to, which is clearly not the case. And uh, so, what ten years ago, I was doing this this idiotic thing, which was even more idiotic than the Green to Bionomo, which was called <laughs> Scrappy Orchestra, where uh, which which it was even more idiotic because what we didn't realize was it was a reality television documentary rather than a serious documentary so they're winding us up in all sorts of ways so i all of a sudden had got this point the camera crew were there it was costing something like twenty thousand pounds a day to have the camera crew and they wanted results and i kind of made this double base out of the bonnet of a jaguar and a copper central heating tank so the the hood of a jaguar you're turning yeah. into an instrument jaguar is really important because if you look at a jaguar it's got that sort of that that raised bit down the middle it's got a crease in the metal got a crease yeah. so it, which works really really well as a sort of kind of like a steiner arch <laughs> and most most cars just won't cut the mustard they'll be too flexible but a jaguar or jaguar i think you call them in your country uh, yes. Yeah. So, so the results of you cutting these holes. So I had the camera on me, the whole team around me, and it's like, come on, we need something for the camera. So I just had within five minutes to punch a hole through this using a some kind of bradle or something like that. Just mark out everything blindly. Take a jigsaw. Mm -hmm. That's like a sawzall, actually. Yes. And. 2000 and 2010, I think this is before David Burgess's Sawzall video. Oh, yeah. His infamous video that you can find on YouTube of um, finding a better way to do instrument repairs, David Burgess. I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, check that out. So this was me with a jigsaw. Mm-hmm. Same thing, just as just as dangerous, and just whacking out these sound these sound holes into the bonnet. <laughs> I couldn't with nothing else, and it was just sheer concentration and just all the time reciting in my mind as I was absolutely pulling myself about you know trying to get those horizontal and vertical lines and working to them. Yeah, I think I did a good job. <laughs> I think it was flawless, and uh, I'd love to post a photo of that in our show notes and on Instagram so everyone can see your gorgeous work. <laughs> One key thing that I noticed, and again, um, gosh, when is this period? Um, so we're looking at like right around 1800, like late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, we're a generation after Antonio Stradivari where we've moved um, to another region around the Swiss Alps. Um, so a lot of these Viennese instruments from this period have very dark, opaque varnish. It's hard to see the wood through the varnish. And there's different schools of thought on why it was that way. So I'd love to hear your opinion on this. So what you're you're talking about this really really black varnish which which appears in Vienna at that at that period, and actually it, things like that appear in different places as well. And I know that we won't mention names, but there's a uh, there's a book about Geisenhof which is published by the museum, mm -hmm. which makes some very strong claims that 
this was black varnish because they decided that black was a beautiful color and the, the fact that they that it is black is rather substantiated by the fact that other instruments aren't black okay i think that's what it says uh I, it was uh <laughs> basically stating that the, this was intentional um, that there they was could have done red if they wanted to do red. Yeah, that there was black and yeah, that there was enough uh, knowledge at the time to have made uh, luminous varnish, but um, but your opinion is is, is, not, is never is trusted not museum label. Okay. Um, at that point, I'm I'm ducking because. Uh, yeah, let me know if you want me to cut any of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an infuriating one. I I. Didn't have a Geisenhof to hand, but I've got a there's a, a Kennedy from from London, and there's a a Krask that I've that I've got where the where the, the varnish is is toasted, and uh, and what I I think I showed you some photographs that that actually a lot of blackness in varnish comes from come comes from oxidization. Mm-hmm. And where does that oxidization it come from? Could, it could be as simple as leaving the varnish in an iron pot, mm-hmm. or possibly the glue size, because these instruments have a like like Mittenwald violins. They have a glue size underneath the varnish, and if that glue size again is being put on with a brush kept in an iron pot, there's enough iron which is going which is going into the mixture to create some kind of some kind of oxidization and what what we find with that oxidization is it very rarely actually impacts the the red pigment in the varnish okay it just it just gets into the morass of stuff up, up elsewhere so if you shine an incredible at uh, the brightest light that you can at the varnish then you will begin to see and actually even sunlight just take these things out into the sunlight on a nice day and see if they give you flashes of red or not. And if they do, there's a lot of red pigment in the varnish. And normally when we see these black instruments, they're actually red. You've just got to you've just got to do enough to see them. And red pigment, you're not gonna put red pigment into something in order to make it all black. But different things can happen. Uh, putting too much nitric acid onto an instrument and not washing it off will actually sort of toast the wood and then you, you know, glow, nice glowing reds will turn into black as a result of it because of the underlying color so uh and this is just me theorizing yeah. could it be that a, a school of making in vienna just overlooked that this chemical process could happen uh when they were making their red violins it's very likely i mean with, with restorers one of one of the rules that some restorers do is that is to use Japanese paintbrushes for cleaning out cracks, because the way that the Japanese paintbrush works, it doesn't have a, a metal ferrule holding the holding the hairs to the to the shaft of, of the brush. If and the argument is is that there's enough ferrous material in in the in in this in the staple or the ferrule of a of a conventional brush that actually eventually that can that that can put enough into the glue that well into the surface and the glue that you can end up with the crank going dark and oxidizing over time. That's such a good point because I absolutely at my shop I use those cheap, cheap brushes 
that yeah. are like they've got metal pinched around holding these like thick plastic pieces of fibers together and use those in my glue pot and actually can see them starting to rust sometimes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'm going to have to think about that if I'm using glue in any application that's going to be like where varnish is visible. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things I'm, I'm just going to sort of put that in fairness that yeah. I think the chemical reaction would be so, so sufficiently slow that we don't necessarily know that this is a precaution that we need to take. Yeah. Now there's a third theory floating around that regardless of the veracity of it, I think it's super interesting and I'd like to mention it. Um, so at the time, uh, Empress Maria Teresa of Austria in 1765, I think she's the same woman. I want to say the, she's the one who has the tortoise shell violin. Right. Okay. So yeah. it, so in the museum, there is a ridiculous violin. The top and the sides and the bottom are made of tortoise shell. The neck and the scroll are all, um, they're all ivory or ebony with inlay of ivory, ivory and ebony in the fingerboard. And the purfling is made from gold thread. And um, I bet it sounds not great, <laughs> but it, it sure looks fancy. Anyway, so so this woman, this is another testament to the wealth of Vienna. In 1765, she is in mourning because uh, her husband, the Holy Roman Emperor Francis Stephen of Lorraine, has passed. And there's a quartet of instruments she ordered from the maker Pietro Mantegazza. I hope I'm saying Mantegazza. Yeah. And she ordered that they be coated in black varnish. Is there any possibility that this just was in vogue for a hot minute there, Ben? If it was in vogue for a hot minute, huh? that wouldn't explain one person's entire career of several decades of making instruments. Well, I mean, the hot minutes were a lot yeah. slower back then. Yeah. <laughs> like, could, could there be any truth to them um, trying to sell stuff that is in vogue to, you know, the richest people in the area. And if that's, you know, just like Queen Victoria uh, wore a white wedding dress and to this day, we're all wearing white wedding dresses. Could she have had that kind of impact? Or a black dress from the moment that her husband died to the end of her life. Yeah. But then the thing is, is that then you've got to look culturally beyond that. And uh, again, never... Am I expressing cynicism at a catalogue about violins? Uh, <laughs> oh, this, this is just a random magazine article. This is not. Uh, is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, they're absolved from that. <laughs> well, then look, let's look at everything else which was created in Vienna at the same time. And mm -hmm. is there generally black things produced in, in Vienna of a wide variety of, of, of things, uh, from clothes to shoes to whatever? specifically black at, at that at that time i've never seen any kind any image which has shown exclusively black things and it's like oh that's viennese because mm -hmm. because it's just a painting full of people wearing black clothes holding black things i guess we would see more documentation of this being intentional or more writing on yeah. it 
And and this is, as far as I know, the only mention of violins being painted black on purpose. It reminds me a little bit, I'm, I'm really going to lose friends here, but there was somebody who did a, uh, they did a, a big study on uh, women playing side saddle cello in the 19th century. Okay. Uh, because apparently that was, uh, that, that was the done thing. And they produced an entire argument about this. And the one thing that they failed to do in finding all these paintings and latterly photographs of famous side saddle female cellists was, and creating this very strong, robust argument, was to look at how men played the cello at the same time. And how were they playing at the time? Well, apparently it wasn't side saddle, but it looked exactly the same as the women who were doing side saddle. And all that they picked up on is that at the time when there's very short spikes of about six inches or so, the way that cellos were, were held was this sort of somewhat side saddle thing and that there was enough pictures of women doing it to, to construct an argument. But one one piece of curiosity beyond, beyond the subject matter itself would have shown that... Uh, that that was just the way that you play a cello. <laughs> so I'm guessing there's lots of conjecture about uh, the purity of women playing this way, and and yet you're just finding that everyone's playing yeah. that way. Okay, yeah. <laughs> men have to be pure too. <laughs> Well, Ben, I defer to you. You're obviously the professional in um, the matter of of all of this conjecture uh, regarding how violins were made and when. I'm just saying to um, cause trouble, that's all. Good. Okay. Well, that's why you're here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I mentioned earlier, another thing that I noticed was there was an abrupt change in Geisenhoff's making. There, There's no conjecture there because it's clear he's got um, Strad patterns and Strad making forms that have Stradivarius written like in his pattern of handwriting. Um, and so it's, it's clear that he is, uh, he has decided that this is the violin to make and I, and mine will be these kinds of models from here on out. Um, the style of his F holes change, the style of his outline, uh, his mold changes, his, um, varnish changes, um, I want to call it the Strad effect. Uh, and you had told me that there's a little bit more going on than just the effect of Stradivari. Um, you mentioned that there's some influence happening in Paris at the same time. So Vienna and Paris is very, uh, Vienna is quite a revolutionary city. And yeah, you've, you've, you've already talked about how how much influence the uh, the Habsburg rulers had, and you know, how overbearing that was actually on, on an awful lot of, of Vienna in particular. And you've got the French Revolution happening, where it, another surprisingly similarly uh, to over overbearing aristocracy kind of city, and uh, and there's an awful lot of sort of fraternity between the, these two cities. They they see themselves at the head of the line of, of enlightened times and all of this sort of stuff and uh, you know, even Beethoven who is sort of based very much in Vienna as uh, he looks, he's come from humble birth so has Napoleon and he sees himself very much as him and Napoleon coming from the same place so 
when he writes his Eroica symphony, the intention was that that was going to be a symphony in praise of in praise of the hero Napoleon. And he then, when he does write it, he, he puts this little epitaph of of to, 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 to a man who once was you know who once was a great man but no longer still or quite however he puts it because actually although the Viennese a lot of the Viennese population admire Paris and vice versa Napoleon admires Vienna so much that he wants to invade it so so in a, so Beethoven is writing these pieces whilst cannonballs are flying over from the siege of Vienna so there's a sort of a very much a love hate relationship which which leaves definitely sort of certain principles of 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 parisian post-revolutionary enlightenment are having an enormous impact on life even though unfortunately napoleon's gone a bit too far yeah so they they see the other cities as equals exactly and then one day one is invading the other exactly okay but in france there's this just the the revolution creates this this incredible change. You know, you're not allowed to call the months of the year what they were before, and the years themselves are now years since the revolution. And you know, the the the, the tiny sort of ways in which the revolution, the, the post-revolutionary government, gets into the mindset of you know reprogramming everybody. And it's interesting that just before the revolution, there's a there's a book, there's an encyclopedia of trades and arts which. This published in France, and is talking about Stradivari as the first of the modern violin makers, and putting Amati and all of all of Amati Steiner, all all of those concepts, in, into something of the past. And Vienna is looking forward. Vienna is also looking forward. It's 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 one of the great great set beacons of of, of enlightenment Europe as, as as Paris is, and so there's this this difficult symbiosis because the Viennese by now hate the hate the Parisians for good reason. But at the same time, they see themselves. Franz Franz is sitting at home thinking, "I am part of the future. I'm going to make modern." But I think what happens is it's actually when you look at the art du, the, the violon by Cartier, the, the treatises which are produced by the new conservatoire, they are all to do with creating in the 1790s. They're to do with creating a completely regulated means of playing. And actually, you, don't, you open you open up the the the. the uh, the work and if you're lucky if you find a first edition there's the you know there's the declaration of 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 the committee for music which is licensing this and it's it 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 feels quite claustrophobic it it, you really see that nothing everything has to be changed in in order for for enlightenment and somehow lupo comes right into the middle of this 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 fray and his making these violins of the modern age which are his Stradivari copies. And it's important to talk about him because, I mean, years ago I was, I was told by an old-time London London dealer that, that Geisenhofs, he should look after them, they're, they're, they're a poor man's lupo. And I'm thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. He also said, shame they're, black, they're, shame they're so dark, but apart from that. And, you know, you listen to these things, you know, Krask is a poor man's Italian violin, uh, Geisenhoff's a, a poor man's Lupo. 
but actually looking at them, it's like, well, lo and behold, they are. They're, they're, there's too much similarity. And what jumps out to you that is similar? It's almost as if a lupo is a sort of an idealized average of the golden period. Okay. And then there's other things like the sort of actually how bulky the edges are by comparison to that. The edges are always just that bit. There's some strats which, which have that bigness of edge, but not all of them. All lupos do. You look at guys and hoffs, and there's, they're also you know, bruisers of violins. They're not delicate. And it seems far more likely that Geisenhoff is looking at lupos, knowing that they're in the Stradivari tradition, and taking his cue from the French, and particularly from what Lupo is producing, and calling that his Stradivari model than actually going to Stradivaris themselves. There are a number of times we've actually seen instruments with a, f- a fake Stradivari label, in Ga- which is exactly in Geisenhoff's font which are actually copies of uh, of real of real strats that he'd seen. But I think nine, nine, all the thing, most of what you see in terms of Stradivari models in, in the Kunsthistorisches Museum are Lupo copies, in my view. Okay. This is making me think about the work that's on my workbench right now. Uh, I am still working on my very first Viotti model Strad, my first violin, and today I am cutting the um, the channels and thinking about those edges and thinking about how much uh, I want to stay true to the model, um, going through those same processes that these people have made for 300 years now, um, seeing how how... Lupo summarizes Stradivari and how Geisenhoff summarizes Stradivari and how they all copy off of each other. Um, I'm in a room full of people making the exact same moves with their gouges. Um, So to all of you guys out there who are trying to make those same decisions, uh, cheers to you. (laughs) And uh, Ben, thank you as always for your words of wisdom and your expertise. See you soon. Bye. Thank you, Homo sapiens, for listening. We close today with a little bonus. The crypt tour of St. Stephen's Cathedral in the central of Vienna, where the Habsburg family, or parts of them, are kept. These copper urns are built with alcohol, and in this alcohol are the intestines and inner organs of the Habsburg Empress and their families. Because since the 17th century, the Habsburgs are embalmed. To embalm the bodies, they had to take out the intestines and organs first. The hearts were given to silver urns. These silver urns in the Church of St. Augustine next to the imperial court. All the other intestines and organs are here, and the bodies were filled with wax. OMA is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie DeLoach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples. Music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own OMO swag. We'd love to hear from you. 
So reach out at mail at omapod.com or call the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.